0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to Revelation chapter 21, Revelation uh, 21, and uh, we are continuing in our series through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this uh, book, week of this uh, book, we come to Revelation 21, verse 1. My goal today is to look at verses 1 through 8, and the title of the message this morning is Something Better Than a New Year. Something Better Than a New Year. You know, I think there's something about a new year that all of us uh, appreciate. Uh, There's something about leaving the old year behind uh, with all of its trials and sorrows and Uh, failures and disappointments, uh, and being able to enter into a fresh new year that is as yet untainted by sin and disappointment and sorrow like the old year was. And it's during this time that we often Uh, resolve to do better ourselves, and we make New Year's resolutions determined to do better than we did the year before, and we almost always enter the new year with a spirit of optimism and hope, hoping for something better than the brokenness of the year prior. But it's not long, right, uh, before we see that the new year is not a whole lot different than the previous year, full of sorrow and brokenness and disappointment and sin. The new year always lets us down, and we let ourselves down. We make our New Year's resolutions, and then, as Charles Spurgeon says, we discover that tomorrow is blood red with the murder of fair resolutions, But then when the next year rolls around, we'll face that new year with hope once again, longing for something different than the year before. This is the cycle that we go through. This longing that you and I have for something new and clean and untainted by sin is actually not to be discouraged. It's a God-given desire In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, Solomon says, and I quote, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And because of this, we find ourselves with desires that no new year in this broken world can satisfy. You know, when mankind fell because of sin, we lost so much because of sin. But we did not lose in the fall. We did not lose our craving, our appetite that only eternity can satisfy. And it is the size of this craving inside of you and me that shows us that we were made for more than a new year. We were made for another world, amen? And this morning, we're gonna begin to see this other world begin to unfold before our eyes. It is when we come to Revelation 21 that we finally, at long last, discover the reality that our hearts have longed for, and it's so much better than any new year in this broken world could ever give to us. Four times in our passage this morning, we're going to see the word new. In verse 1, we see reference to the new heavens and the new earth. In verse 2, we see reference to the new Jerusalem. And in verse 5, we have God making a promise and saying, behold, I am making all things new. And the Greek word that is translated new in this passage speaks not of something that is merely new in time, but something that is qualitatively new, something that is pristine and of a different quality than what preceded it. In Revelation 20, we saw how Christ rules upon the earth for a thousand years, at the end of which time Satan is loose to deceive a great multitude into a rebellion against Christ. But then we saw how fire comes down out of heaven from God and destroys these rebels, deceived by Satan. And then we're told that Satan is taken and thrown into the lake of fire, never to bother anyone again. And then we were treated a few weeks ago at the end of Revelation 20 to the scene of the great white throne judgment of God where all those whose names are not written in the book of life are judged by God and then cast into the lake of fire. And it is after this that the events of Revelation 21 Take place. And as we look at our text this morning, we're going to observe four things four things that John witnesses regarding the great new normal that God ushers in after his final judgment of the wicked. Four things that John witnesses regarding the great new normal. That God ushers in after His final judgment of the wicked. Number one, John sees a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. John sees a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Observe what John says in verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth Passed away, and there is no longer any sea. What John is seeing here is the fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 65, verse 17, where God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. When you read, the first two chapters, we're right now beginning our study of the last two chapters of the Bible. But when you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you learn that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and He created them perfect. After each day of creation, God looked upon what He had made And saw that it was good, and when he was completely finished, he pronounced it very good. But we know, coming into Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve sinned, and through their sin, death entered into the world. Not only did Adam and Eve come under various curses as a result of their sin, but all creation, we learn, in the Bible, came under a curse also. And ever since, Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 8, for example, that all creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until the day of its redemption comes. And what we see here in Revelation 22 verse 1 is the fulfillment of this groaning. You'll notice that as part of His description of the new heavens and the new earth, John tells us in verse 1 that there is no longer any sea. This is probably a literal statement that there will be no oceans and seas on the new earth. But there is probably an element of symbolism here as well. Throughout the Old Testament, the sea was viewed as a place of danger and disorder representing the rebellion of the nations of the world. In fact, write this reference down, Isaiah 57 verse 20. Isaiah 57 verse 20, Isaiah says, the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud, unquote. Even in Revelation chapter 13, we see Satan standing on the sand of the sea and calling forth the beast. And in response, the apostle John says, and I saw a beast coming up out of what? Out of the sea. So what does it mean that there will be no more sea on the new earth? At the very least, we know that there will be no more stormy seas from which will arise any danger to God's people in any way, shape, or form, but it also probably means there will be no oceans, period. And for good reason. Keep in mind that over 70% of the earth is right now covered with oceans and seas, which serve to separate continents and nations from One another. And this kind of division will not exist when the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. John continues in verse 2 and tells us of something else new that he sees. In verse 2, he says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. John is going to describe the new Jerusalem later in this chapter in vivid and colorful detail, and we're going to look at those descriptions, Lord willing, next Sunday. For now, I'll just remind you that Jesus spoke of the new Jerusalem back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, when he speaks to the church of Philadelphia, and he makes a promise to the overcomer in the church, and says, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. What this promise from Jesus in Revelation 3 means is that the new Jerusalem, whatever it is, will be inhabited by Christians in the church who are overcomers in Christ. The fact that this place is called the New Jerusalem indicates that it will assume the place of the old Jerusalem and serve as God's capital city on the new earth, the place where his special presence will dwell. John tells us in verse 2 that this city is holy, meaning that there is no sin in this city It is a city that is completely and utterly devoted to God. And John tells us that he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, which is significant. This means that this city will not be the product of human achievement, nor will it arise from the earth. We're told here that it comes down out of heaven, and we're told the one from whom it comes. It comes from God and not from man. And John sees that this new Jerusalem is made ready as a bride adorned or beautified for her husband. The Greek word that is translated adorned here is the word we get our English word cosmetic from. This is a city that is breathtakingly beautiful, adorned and beautified with a beauty that reflects the incredible imagination of God. It is a beauty that comes from God, and it will take our breath away when we see it. There's another thing that John sees and hears in this passage regarding the great new normal that God ushers in after his Final judgment of the wicked. Number two, let's word it this way, and I couldn't think of a shorter way to word this. John hears God's promise of relationship with and removal of all sorrow from his people. John hears God's promise of relationship with and removal of all sorrow from his people. Observe what he hears beginning in verse 3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. There will be descriptions provided of the New Jerusalem later in this chapter about its dimensions and its physical beauty, but the greatest thing about life in the new heavens and the new earth, the greatest thing about life in the new Jerusalem is what John records here in verse 3. John hears a loud voice in verse 3 from the throne indicating that this is the voice of God himself, or at least it represents the heart of God. And essentially, two statements are uttered loudly by this voice. The first is, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. Which indicates that God will make his habitation among his people. I love this vision of God. God is a relational God who delights to dwell in community with his people. He can live anywhere he desires. He can create any kind of space for himself to dwell in, but he chooses here to live among his people. God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden until Adam sinned. God tabernacled among the people of Israel through their wanderings, and then allowed his special presence to dwell in the temple in Jerusalem. And then God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus Christ when he was on earth. And even now, God tabernacles among us as he inhabits each one of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And he allows us to experience his special presence when we gather together On a day like this morning to worship him. But there is coming a day when God will, in a fuller way than anything you and I have ever known, tabernacle with his people in the new Jerusalem in a way that is completely unhindered by any obstacle or by any sin. Next, this voice from the throne of God declares in verse 3, And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So there's that reminder again of God being among his people because obviously he wants to be. And God will not just dwell among his people, but he will treat them as his people. And he will happily be among them. I should point out here looking at verse 3, that the New American Standard Bible and other English translations, many of them translate the word people as singular, but in the Greek text, this word is plural, which is why Young's literal translation translates this word as peoples, plural. We already know from earlier in Revelation that God has purchased for his son, people of every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And here we see that something of that diversity will continue into the eternal state. As Daniel Achan says, the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem will be wonderfully multicultural and multi-ethnic. There will be no segregated subdivisions in the new Jerusalem," unquote, God will look at all of these saints from various ethnicities and he will say, these are my peeps. These are my peoples, and he will dwell among them, peoples of every race and nationality, and no one nationality will have greater access to him than any other. Isn't that wonderful? And in the church today, we get to mirror that reality as God brings us together in Christ to be one in him. Backing up a bit, imagine how different the experience of God's people is in verse 3 from the experience of God's enemies up to this point of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 6, the wicked are trying to hide from the face of God, from the presence of God In Revelation 20, we see heaven and earth, the old heaven and earth, fleeing away from the face of this God. But for those of us who are his people, saved through Jesus Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the nearness of God will be our experience and our infinite eternal comfort. How good will God be to his people as he dwells among them? Well, the voice from the throne that we're taking as God's voice continues speaking and says in verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God won't just see to it that his people don't cry anymore, but God himself in a deeply personal gesture will wipe the tears from Their eyes. And in that moment, his people will feel their every sorrow removed, lifted from their hearts. Johnny Erickson, as many of you know, lost the full use of her arms and legs in a diving accident at the age of 17. And she, ever since, has so looked forward to the day when she is in glory and has full use of her arms. And legs in heaven, but speaking on this very passage, this very truth that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, she said, and I quote, I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. The news of this verse gets even better than this. This voice from the throne continues speaking and says in verse 4, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When he says that the first things have passed away, think about what all of that entails. In fact, let Charles Swindoll help you with this. He says this means no more terminal diseases, hospitals, wheelchairs, or funerals. No more courts or prisons. No more divorces, breakdowns or breakups. No more heart attacks, strokes, or debilitating illnesses. No more therapists, medications, or surgeries. No famines, plagues, or devastating disasters, unquote. And to that I would add, and no more COVID. And I'm sure you could add to this list as well. Revelation 21, verse 4, is truly one of the great promises of Scripture. Some of you in this congregation have known soul-shattering, mind-numbing pain. Some of you have wept over your own sins. And though you know, even as a believer, that your sins are forgiven, you still find your heart heaving with tearful regret. Some of you have lost precious loved ones just in this past year, and you spent your first Christmas without them last week. Some of you have disease in your bodies that is causing you pain, or you see disease bringing pain to someone who is precious to you. Some of you have wept many tears and found yourself reeling from pain just in the past seven days. Some of you have experienced great joy with family this past week or so, but then came the goodbyes, which point you to a greater goodbye that you know is destined to come. Oh yes, there is wisdom to be found in the piercing pangs of a goodbye. And a longing is stirred for home. For heaven, the place of the eternal hello. But in the meantime, the goodbyes hurt. But one day, one day, the promise of Revelation four will come true. This voice coming from the throne announces that a day is coming when there will be no longer any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, and we who know Christ will enter into an eternal existence in which all of these things are simply viewed as former things that have passed away. In summary, John records what he hears this voice from the throne saying, look at verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. In all likelihood, this is not something that God is going to be saying in this future day only. This is something that God is also saying to John in the first century for John's benefit and for our benefit. God wants all of us to know that even now he is actively working in human history And leading history to this amazing moment when all things truly are going to be made new. God's at work in bringing about that outcome even right now. You think about it, guys, at the present time, God, he gives us so much that is new. He's made us part of the new covenant, which we were reminded of in celebrating communion this morning. He has provided for us a new way to come into His presence through the blood of Christ. He's made us a new creation in Christ Jesus. He's given us a new song. As we wait upon Him, we're told in Isaiah 40 that we gain new strength. We learn in Lamentations that His mercies are new every morning. As Christians, God calls us to put off the old man and to put on the new man, which he has given us in Christ Jesus. So there is already so much about our lives as believers that is new. But all is not new yet, right? We still have indwelling sin. We still live in a broken world, And we still experience so much heartache in this world that is full of sorrow and brokenness and woe. But a day is coming here in Revelation 21 when God fulfills his promise to make all things new. Not just some things, but all things new. And when that day comes, you and I are going to look around and we're not going to see anything that has not been made new by God. We will see no pain, no mourning or aging or death anywhere. And God speaks this assurance to us through John that he is even right now in the year 2022, he is at work in bringing about this outcome for us one day. And when it comes, guys, it's going to be so worth the wait. There's another thing that John sees and hears regarding the new, the great new normal that God ushers in after his final judgment of the wicked. Number three, John hears God promise ultimate satisfaction and royal blessing to the one who overcomes. John hears God's promise of ultimate satisfaction and royal blessing to the one who overcomes. What's interesting when we get to verse, uh, end of verse 5 is we observe that the apostle John was clearly caught up in what He was seeing and hearing, and some writers suggest that maybe he harbored a doubt or two in his heart. Perhaps what he's seeing and hearing is maybe too good to be true at this point. Or maybe John is just so mesmerized with joy to the point of paralysis as he takes in all that he's seeing and hearing in these verses So listen to what the voice from the throne says to John in verse 5. John says, and he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. This voice, the voice of God is saying, John, pick up your pen and write this stuff down. When I say that I am making all things new, the words I speak are completely trustworthy And worth passing on to your readers. I truly am right now in the process of making all things new. And he says, These words are faithful and they are true. We're living in a day where it's becoming harder and harder for you and I to know what to believe. Maybe this is easier for you than it is for me, but I watch and I read the news. And it's hard sometimes to know what news source to trust. Sometimes um, you might say, well, just read the news from the right. Ignore the news from the left and just read the news from right-leaning news sources because that's reliable. Oh, I wish it was that simple. There's so much to distrust coming from every direction in the news media today. And it's challenging to know what to trust, but we don't have to have that problem with the Bible. And I'm so grateful for that. And we shouldn't have that problem with what we're reading in our passage today, because God speaks to John and says, write for these words are faithful and true. John, God is saying, you're not a dreamer, These words that you are hearing are faithful and true words. When I say that I am making all things new, and when I tell you that there will be no more crying or tears or pain or death, you can know that my words are faithful and true. When I tell you that I will tabernacle among my people and dwell among them and be their God, the words I speak are faithful and true. There's something else that God wants John to write down as completely reliable. Listen to what John says in verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God is saying what I'm saying to you, John, is so certain that it is as good as done Even from where you sit in the first century and here at this future moment in history, it will be done. And you can trust what I am saying about such things because I am the Alpha, which is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, the final letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning And the end. And I'm not just the alpha now and then will be the omega later. I am both the alpha and the omega at the same time. I am the beginning and the end at the same time. I transcend time and space. And I not only know the beginning and the end, but the beginning and the end issues forth from me and everything in between. I am the Lord of history, God is saying. Keep in mind that in Revelation 1.8, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and Omega. And in Revelation 22, verse 13, Jesus does the same thing once again. And some take that to mean that Jesus is the one speaking here in Revelation 21.6, 21, six, and that's possible, but however you look at it, Jesus and the Father are one. They are both the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And by the way, thinking of the Alpha and the Omega, this is really good for us to be reminded of in these days of COVID. As the coronavirus continues to evolve into new variants, new letters of the Greek alphabet Are being used to describe these variants. We have gone from being concerned about the Delta variant, which is the fourth letter of the Greek alphabet, months ago, to now being concerned about the Omicron variant, which is the 15th letter of the Greek alphabet. Sooner or later, we may get to the Omega variant. Either way, As we work our way through the Greek alphabet on these various evolutions of the coronavirus, let's remember that God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. And He is the Lord over all that lies in between. And let's remember that He is the Lord. He is the one who is sovereign, not the coronavirus. Anyway, God continues speaking in the second half of verse 6 and says something else that he wants John to write down. Speaking words of promise, he says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. God is speaking to John where John is positioned right now in history in the first century and God wants John to let us know what he's going to do, saying, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The Greek word translated without cost could be translated as freely, speaking of the lavish provision of God who will give at no cost. God is saying to the one who recognizes that the thirst that is in their heart is ultimately a thirst for me, a thirst for heaven, and who comes to me and allows me to be the one who satisfies their thirst. Here is what I will do for that person. I will give to that thirsty person from the spring of the water of life freely. And it will be for free. They won't have to pay me anything to get a drink from these springs of the water of life. Nor will they have to do anything to earn these things. Because Christ has already earned it and paid for it. And I will give it to the thirsty for free. Simply out of the fullness of my loving heart for them. Who is this promise made to? Well, it's made to the overcomer. In verse 7, God says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You say, well, if these blessings are inherited by the one who overcomes, then what do I need to do to overcome well, here's what you need to do. Write this reference down. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. John says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's all you need to do to be an overcomer and to qualify to inherit the springs of the water of life and to inherit a pain-free and a sorrow-free eternity with God in heaven. Believe in Jesus Christ and overcome through the blood of the Lamb If you do, then God's statement here in verse 7 will apply to you when he says he who overcomes will inherit these things that are being described in these verses. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary tells a story about how the great evangelist D.L. Moody, how D.L. Moody's house was burned to the ground in the great Chicago fire of 1871. And a friend came by as Moody was looking at the ruins of his house. And he said to Moody, I I hear you lost everything. And Moody said, well, you understood wrong. I have a good deal more left than what I lost. What do you mean? His friend asked. I didn't know you were that rich. Moody then opened his Bible and read to him this very verse, Revelation 21, verse 7, where God says, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The great Chicago fire could not touch these blessings that were a part of D.L. Moody's inheritance in Christ, nor can anything touch your inheritance if you are a believer in Christ. The springs of water to satisfy your thirst and the blessing of living eternally with God in the new Jerusalem, these things the overcomer will receive as inheritance. On top of that, God says, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In other words, I will be everything to such a person that he needs for me to be without any hindrance whatsoever, and I will treat them as my son or daughter with full rights and privileges of sonship in their fullest adult expression." write down 2nd Samuel 7:14 God speaks to David about Solomon who will be king and and God says I will be his father and he will be my son and he uses this kind of language and here in Revelation 21 this very promise is guaranteed to be the eternal experience of every person who is an overcomer through faith in Christ. This is the ultimate birthright of every one of you if you have believed in Jesus Christ. This is your royal inheritance that you are guaranteed to receive one day in glory. There's one other thing that John sees and hears regarding the new order, the great new normal That will be established after God's final judgment of the wicked. And this one, boy, we're almost not prepared for it because it's a heartbreaker to read in the face of all the beauty of what we've just read. Let's word it this way. Number four John hears God's promise of fiery judgment upon the wicked. John hears God's promise of fiery judgment upon the wicked. God continues speaking in verse eight and says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable or literally polluted and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is part of the new normal in the eternal state. Notice what is on this list, some of the things we might have expected. This list includes those who are abominable, which speaks of those who are polluted by defiling sins. This list includes murderers, those who take the lives of others or hate others without repentance, murdering them in their hearts. It includes immoral persons who engage in sexual acts outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. This list includes sorcerers, which speaks of those who mix drugs with the practices of spirit worship and witchcraft and magic. This list includes idolaters, which includes all those who worship themselves or anything or anyone else above the one true God without repentance, and this list also includes all liars, those who bear false witness and who believe lies and who speak lies without repentance, those who engage in all such acts without repentance and without faith in Christ will find themselves in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Some of these items on this list, we would have expected to be there. But notice the first two items on this list, the cowardly and the unbelieving. Would you have expected cowardly to be the first item on this list of those who will be in the lake of fire? I know I wouldn't have. Who are the cowardly? Well, this word literally speaks of someone who is timid or fearful. To understand what this means, we probably ought to tie it to the next word, unbelieving, which could speak of those who are faithless or unfaithful or both. Either way, God is speaking here of those who were too fearful to believe in Christ, and to stand faithfully for him. They were afraid to confess Christ before the world for fear of ridicule and persecution. They were afraid of what faith in Christ might end up costing them, fearful about what they might lose if they believed in Christ. So they did not believe, and they did not prove faithful to him. Whatever their motive, they did not believe in Christ and take their stand with Him because they were too timid, too timid to believe. They weren't adventurous enough or courageous enough to brave the life of faith and all that it entails. They were afraid of the heights to which the gospel would have taken them, so they did not believe. To such persons, God says, I sent my son into the world, born of a virgin. He died on the cross. I then raised him from the dead. Then I ascended him to my right hand, where he now reigns from on high. And if you believe in him and you call upon his name, I will freely give you salvation, and I will ascend you to the very heights of heaven and glorify you ultimately in ways that you cannot right now conceive. And such people hear that offer and decline God's offer and content themselves with the mud pies of this world. And God views their rejection as many things, one of which is cowardice. They're cowards. They're afraid of spiritual heights. So they live in the here and now and limit themselves to the things of this world that are passing away. And they don't believe in the beautiful Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this voice from heaven is saying that those who are cowardly and unbelieving and unrepentant in the ways that are listed here in verse 8 will have their part in the lake of fire, which is the second death. Their experience will be eternal suffering away from the love of God, while, on the other hand, the experience of those who believed in Christ will be eternal satisfaction in the love of God in heaven. And for all eternity, this will be the great new normal, with the thirsty overcomers being eternally satiated with God's amazing, infinite goodness, and the unrepentant sinners being tormented in the flames of the lake of fire. This is the new normal that John sees with his own eyes and hears with his ears as God speaks to him of things to come. And the words God is speaking here are faithful and true. This past Friday night, there were many television networks that featured New Year's Eve programming up till midnight and maybe a little bit just beyond to help their viewers bring in the new year. On one of those programs, just five minutes before the ball dropped in Times Square, a contemporary artist performed her rendition of the song, Imagine, written by John Lennon, I think 51 years ago. This was the crescendo of the evening the final performance before the ball dropped. The words of this song still ringing in the ears of those as they're being ushered into the new year. Imagine there's no heaven, she sang. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. That song is many things, one of which is it is the anthem of cowards who cannot bear the gravitas of the reality of a heaven and a hell and of things to come. It's a total cop-out, and as Christians, we refuse to raise our voice with the world and singing that cowardly anthem. Because we know that there is a heaven and we know that there is a hell and we know that there is a tomorrow worth living for. Because the one who tells us of these things is faithful and true. And we don't wish to imagine things any other way. We know that there is a savior worth dying for because he came into this world and died for us can you imagine if jesus came into this world and decided to follow john lennon's advice and to imagine that there was nothing worth him dying for imagine that this belief in heaven and hell this belief And a tomorrow worth living for and a savior worth living and dying for. This is our religion. And it's based on words that are faithful and true. Amen? Amen. The worldlings of the world can imagine all they want, but they can't make their imaginations true. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing. Because one day their imaginings will come to naught. Jesus will take up the scroll of human destiny and he will bring his will to pass. And when it is all said and done, those who believed in Jesus will find themselves in a heaven that is far greater than they could have ever imagined. And the cowardly unbelievers will find themselves in a hell far worse than they could have ever imagined. So the question this morning is, what will it be for you? Will you follow the vain imaginings of John Lennon? Or will you follow the faithful and the true words spoken to John the Apostle? Will you take your place with those courageous souls who stand up and believe in Jesus Will you take your place with the thirsty overcomers who know that the thirst inside of them is far greater than anything this world could ever satisfy? Or will you be among the cowards who are far too easily pleased? Will you be one of those half-hearted creatures that C.S. Lewis speaks about? who are, and I quote, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered to you, will you be like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because you cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea? I pray that you will realize that the living God is far greater than anything you can imagine, that Jesus Christ is more beautiful and more lovely than you can fathom, and that the salvation that he offers is real and it's eternal, and that you will realize you are suffering every moment that you are living apart from him I pray that even this morning, if you have never done so, that you will run to Jesus and believe in him and realize that he's the one that your soul has been thirsty for all of your life. For those of you who are Christians, what difference should believing, what our passage teaches us make in our lives this year, what we've seen in our text is something infinitely better than a new year But the vision of this future is actually designed to help us to live better this year. Let me close by just having you turn to 2 Peter 3, where the Apostle Peter tells us of the difference this future should make and how you and I live in 2022 and beyond. In 2 Peter 3, Peter describes the coming destruction of the present heavens and earth, and then he says, beginning in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless." And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. I love the balance of these verses. As Christians, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth, yet, this future motivates us to live in godliness and to engage in holy conduct even now. And while we might wish that this glorious future would come right now instantly, We should realize that God is a patient God and he is using this time of waiting to save souls and he wants to use us in that endeavor. He wants us to use the time that we have left to share Christ with others and to bring as many people with us into these glorious realities to come. So let's be wise as Christians and as a church this year. Let's not look to the things of this world to satisfy our infinitely sized cravings that only Christ can satisfy. But let's let eternity motivate us to use the opportunities that God gives to us to walk in godliness and to make Christ known to others, to our friends and to our family members, to our children, and to our grandchildren, and to the world. And we can say to them, I hope someday you'll join us. I hope someday you'll join me. When God makes all things new and lives with us and blesses us for all eternity, those who have overcome through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask God to help us to live this way. Lord, we want to be a light. We're not here just to mark time. You have placed cornerstone in this city for a reason, Lord. And you want 2022 to be a year in which a great difference is made for eternity. I pray that you would help us as your people to be done with lesser things and to put our hand to the plow and to engage in the great work that is left for us to do as we raise our children as we shine as lights in the workplace and in our neighborhoods in our homes toward our immediate family and more distant family. Lord, may souls be saved through the brothers and sisters in this congregation, through their ministry during the days of this year. And that eternity, our eternal experience of the very things we're looking at in this passage will only be enhanced. Our joy will be enhanced by them being with us And the enjoyment of these things make us so eternity-minded that we are of great earthly good. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,